Welcome to This Week in Medicine, your filtered medical journal summary. Looking to stay up to date with the latest medical research but short on time? This Week in Medicine has you covered. Our AI-generated podcast provides you with a convenient, on-the-go solution to keep you informed about the most significant developments in the medicine field. We understand that your time is valuable, so we've done the hard work for you. Each episode offers a filtered and concentrated summary of key journal articles, allowing you to stay informed without the need to sift through pages of research papers. With This Week in Medicine, listening is faster than reading, and you can consume valuable medical knowledge while commuting, exercising, or during your daily routine. The information provided in this podcast is for general informational purposes only and is not intended as medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. The podcast is not a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. Hi, this week in medicine, we will be discussing. First we will be discussing articles in New England Journal of Medicine. Drug-eluting resorbable scaffold versus angioplasty for infrapapilidal artery disease. Background. Among patients with chronic limb-threatening ischemia, CLTI, and infrapapilidal artery disease, angioplasty has been associated with frequent re-intervention and adverse limb outcomes from restenosis. The effect of the use of drug-eluting resorbable scaffolds on these outcomes remains unknown. Methods. In this multicenter, randomized, controlled trial, 261 patients with CLTI and infrapapilidal artery disease were randomly assigned in a 2 to 1 ratio to receive treatment with an everolimus eluding resorbable scaffold or angioplasty. The primary efficacy endpoint was freedom from the following events at one year, amputation above the ankle of the target limb, occlusion of the target vessel, clinically driven revascularization of the target lesion, and binary restenosis of the target lesion. The primary safety endpoint was freedom from major adverse limb events at 6 months and from perioperative death. Results The primary efficacy endpoint was observed, i.e., no events occurred, in 135 of 173 patients in the scaffold group and 48 of 88 patients in the angioplasty group, Kaplan-Meier estimate, 74% versus 44%, absolute difference, 30 percentage points, 95% confidence interval, C, 15 to 46, one-sided P less than 0.001 for superiority. The primary safety endpoint was observed in 165 of 170 patients in the scaffold group and 90 of 90 patients in the angioplasty group, absolute difference, minus 3 percentage points, 95% C, minus 6 to 0, one-sided P less than 0.001 for non-inferiority. Serious adverse events related to the index procedure occurred in 2% of the patients in the scaffold group and 3% of those in the angioplasty group. Conclusions Among patients with CLTI due to infrapapilidal artery disease, the use of an everolimus eluding resorbable scaffold was superior to angioplasty with respect to the primary efficacy endpoint. A Phase 2 Trial of Cipiprinlimab in Patients with Eganephropathy Background A proliferation-inducing ligand, April, is implicated in the pathogenesis of eganephropathy. Cipiprinlimab is a humanized Ig2 monoclonal antibody that binds to and neutralizes April. Methods In this Phase 2, multicenter, double-blind, randomized, placebo-controlled, parallel group trial, we randomly assigned adults with biopsy-confirmed eganephropathy who were at high risk for disease progression, 
despite having received standard care treatment, in a 1 to 1 colon 1 to 1 ratio to receive intravenous cipiprinlimab at a dose of 2, 4, or 8 mg per kilogram of body weight or placebo once monthly for 12 months. The primary endpoint was the change from baseline in the log-transformed 24-hour urinary protein to creatinine ratio at month 12. Secondary endpoints included the change from baseline in the estimated glomerular filtration rate, EGFR, at month 12. Safety was also assessed. Results Among 155 patients who underwent randomization, 38 received cipiprinlimab at a dose of 2 mg per kilogram, 41 received cipiprinlimab at a dose of 4 mg per kilogram, 38 received cipiprinlimab at a dose of 8 mg per kilogram, and 38 received placebo. At 12 months, the geometric mean ratio reduction, plus or minus A, from baseline in the 24-hour urinary protein to creatinine ratio was 47.2 plus or minus 8. 2%, 58.8 plus or minus 6. 1%, 62.0 plus or minus 5. 7%, and 20.0 plus or minus 12. 6% in the cipiprinlimab 2 mg, 4 mg, and 8 mg groups and the placebo group, respectively. At 12 months, the least squares mean, plus or minus A, change from baseline in EGFR was minus 2.7 plus or minus 1.8, 0.2 plus or minus 1.7 minus 1.5 plus or minus 1.8, and minus 7.4 plus or minus 1. 8 milliliters per minute per 1.73 square meters in the cipiprinlimab 2 milligram, 4 milligram, and 8 milligram groups and the placebo group, respectively. The incidence of adverse events that occurred after the start of administration of cipiprinlimab or placebo was 78.6% in the pooled cipiprinlimab groups and 71.1% in the placebo group. Conclusions In patients with eganephropathy, 12 months of treatment with cipiprinlimab resulted in a significantly greater decrease in proteinuria than placebo. Liquefied petroleum gas or biomass cooking in severe infant pneumonia Background Exposure to household air pollution is a risk factor for severe pneumonia. The effect of replacing biomass cookstoves with liquefied petroleum gas, LPG, cookstoves on the incidence of severe infant pneumonia is uncertain. Methods We conducted a randomized, controlled trial involving pregnant women 18 to 34 years of age and between 9 to less than 20 weeks gestation in India, Guatemala, Peru, and Rwanda from May 2018 through September 2021. The women were assigned to cook with unvented LPG stoves and fuel, intervention group, or to continue cooking with biomass fuel, control group. In each trial group, we monitored adherence to the use of the assigned cookstove and measured 24-hour personal exposure to fine particulate matter, particles with an aerodynamic diameter of less than or equal to 2.5 m, PM 2.5, in the women and their offspring. The trial had four primary outcomes, the primary outcome for which data are presented in the current report was severe pneumonia in the first year of life, as identified through facility surveillance or on verbal autopsy. Results Among 3,200 pregnant women who had undergone randomization, 3,195 remained eligible and gave birth to 3,061 infants, 1,536 in the intervention group, and 1,525 in the control group. 
High uptake of the intervention led to a reduction in personal exposure to PM2.5 among the children, with a median exposure of 24.2 g per cubic meter, interquartile range, 17.8 to 36.4, in the intervention group and 66.0 g per cubic meter, interquartile range, 35.2 to 132.0, in the control group. A total of 175 episodes of severe pneumonia were identified during the first year of life, with an incidence of 5.67 cases per 100 child years, 95% confidence interval, c, 4.55 to 7.07, in the intervention group and 6.06 cases per 100 child years, 95% c, 4.81 to 7.62, in the control group, incidence rate ratio, 0.96, 98.75% C, 0.64 to 1.44, P equals 0.81. No severe adverse events were reported to be associated with the intervention, as determined by the trial investigators. Conclusions The incidence of severe pneumonia among infants did not differ significantly between those whose mothers were assigned to cook with LPG stoves and fuel and those whose mothers were assigned to continue cooking with biomass stoves. Next article from Journal of American Medical Association. Continued treatment with tired sepatide for maintenance of weight reduction in adults with obesity The surmount for randomized clinical trial. Importance The effect of continued treatment with tired sepatide on maintaining initial weight reduction is unknown. Objective to assess the effect of tired sepatide, with diet and physical activity, on the maintenance of weight reduction. Design, setting, and participants This Phase 3, Randomized withdrawal clinical trial conducted at 70 sites in four countries with a 36-week, open-label tired sepatide lead-in period followed by a 52-week, double-blind, placebo-controlled period included adults with a body mass index greater than or equal to 30 or greater than or equal to 27 and a weight-related complication, excluding diabetes. Interventions participants N equals 783, enrolled in an open-label lead-in period received once-weekly subcutaneous maximum tolerated dose, 10 or 15 mg, of tired sepatide for 36 weeks. At week 36, a total of 670 participants were randomized, one-to-one, to continue receiving tired sepatide, N equals 335, or switch to placebo, N equals 335, for 52 weeks. Main outcomes and measures The primary endpoint was the mean percent change in weight from week 36, randomization, to week 88. Key secondary endpoints included the proportion of participants at week 88 who maintained at least 80% of the weight loss during the lead-in period. Results participants, N equals 670, mean age, 48 years, 473, 71%, women, mean weight, 107.3 kilograms, who completed the 36-week lead-in period experienced a mean weight reduction of 20.9%. The mean percent weight change from week 36 to week 88 was minus 5.5% with tired sepatide versus 14.0% with placebo, difference, minus 19.4%, 95% C, minus 21.2% to minus 17.7%, P less than 0.001. Overall, 300 participants, 89.5%, receiving tired sepatide at 88 weeks maintained at least 80% of the weight loss during the lead-in period compared with 16.6% receiving placebo, 
p less than 0.001. The overall mean weight reduction from week 0 to 88 was 25.3% for tyrtsepatide and 9.9% for placebo. The most common adverse events were mostly mild to moderate gastrointestinal events, which occurred more commonly with tyrtsepatide versus placebo. Conclusions and relevance in participants with obesity or overweight, withdrawing tyrtsepatide led to substantial regain of lost weight, whereas continued treatment maintained an augmented initial weight reduction. Pregnancy after breast cancer in young BRCA carriers and international hospital-based cohort study. Objective to investigate cumulative incidence of pregnancy and disease-free survival in young women who are BRCA carriers. Design, setting, and participants international, multi-center, hospital-based, retrospective cohort study conducted at 78 participating centers worldwide. The study included female participants diagnosed with invasive breast cancer age 40 years or younger between January 2000 and December 2020 carrying germline pathogenic variants in BRCA1 and or BRCA2. Last delivery was October 7, 2022. Last follow-up was February 20, 2023. Exposure Pregnancy After Breast Cancer Main outcomes and measures primary endpoints were cumulative incidence of pregnancy after breast cancer and disease-free survival. Secondary endpoints were breast cancer-specific survival, overall survival, pregnancy, and fetal and obstetric outcomes. Results of 4,732 BRCA carriers included, 659 had at least one pregnancy after breast cancer and 4,073 did not. Median age at diagnosis in the overall cohort was 35 years, IQR, 31 to 38 years. Cumulative incidence of pregnancy at 10 years was 22%, 95% C, 21% to 24%, with a median time from breast cancer diagnosis to conception of 3.5 years, IQR, 2.2 to 5.3 years. Among the 659 patients who had a pregnancy, 45, 6.9% and 63, 9.7%, had an induced abortion or a miscarriage, respectively. Of the 517 patients, 79.7%, with a completed pregnancy, 406, 91.0%, delivered at term, greater than or equal to 37 weeks, and 54, 10.4%, had twins. Among the 470 infants born with known information on pregnancy complications, 4, 0.9%, had documented congenital anomalies. Median follow-up was 7.8 years, IQR, 4.5 to 12.6 years. No significant difference in disease-free survival was observed between patients with or without a pregnancy after breast cancer, adjusted hazard ratio, 0.99, 95% C, 0.81 to 1.20. Patients who had a pregnancy had significantly better breast cancer-specific survival and overall survival. Conclusions and relevance in this global study, 1 in 5 young BRCA carriers conceived within 10 years after breast cancer diagnosis. Pregnancy following breast cancer in BRCA carriers was not associated with decreased disease-free survival. Next article from Nature Medicine. A digital health algorithm to guide antibiotic prescription in pediatric outpatient care, a cluster randomized controlled trial. 
Excessive antibiotic use and antimicrobial resistance are major global public health threats. We developed Epic Plus, a digital clinical decision support algorithm in combination with C-reactive protein test, hemoglobin test, pulse oximeter and mentorship, to guide healthcare providers in managing acutely sick children under 15 years old. To evaluate the impact of Epic Plus compared to usual care, we conducted a cluster randomized controlled trial in Tanzania in primary care facilities. Over 11 months, 23,593 consultations were included from 20 Epic Plus health facilities and 20,713 from 20 usual care facilities. The use of Epic Plus in intervention facilities resulted in a reduction in the co-primary outcome of antibiotic prescription compared to usual care, 23.2% versus 70.1%, adjusted difference minus 46.4%, 95% confidence interval, C, minus 57.6 to minus 35.2. The co-primary outcome of day 7 clinical failure was non-inferior in Epic Plus facilities compared to usual care facilities, adjusted relative risk 0.97, 95% C 0.85 to 1.10. There was no difference in the secondary safety outcomes of death and non-referred secondary hospitalizations by day 7. Using Epic Plus could help address the urgent problem of antimicrobial resistance by safely reducing antibiotic prescribing. Next article from British Medical Journal Retail demand for emergency contraception in United States following New Year holiday, time series study. Objective to estimate the increase in sales of emergency contraception following the New Year's Eve slash New Year's Day holiday. Design time series analysis using autoregressive integrated moving average, ARIMA, model. Setting traditional, that is, bricks and mortar, retail outlets, grocery stores, drug stores, mass merchandisers, club stores, dollar stores, and military outlets, in the United States from 2016 to 2022. Data source marketing data on weekly aggregated sales of items classified as emergency contraception gathered between 2016 and 2022, and equals 362. On the basis of dates, weeks were classified as following the New Year holiday, and equals 6, or not, and equals 356. Main outcome measure weekly sales of levonorgestrel emergency contraception per 1,000 women of reproductive age in the U.S. population. Results sales of levonorgestrel emergency contraception significantly increased after the New Year holiday, 0.63, 95% confidence interval 0.58 to 0.69, unit increase per 1,000 women aged 15 to 44. Holidays that share some aspects of the elevated risks of unprotected sexual intercourse with the New Year holiday, Valentine's Day, St. Patrick's Day, U.S. Independence Day, were associated with increased sales, albeit to a lesser degree, with respective sales increases per 1,000 women aged 15 to 44 of 0.31, 0.25 to 0.38, 0.14, 0.19 to 0.23, and 0.20. 0.11 to 0.29. Holidays without these expectations, Easter, Mother's Day, Father's Day, were not significantly associated with sales of levonorgestrel emergency contraception. Conclusions increase sales of emergency contraception following the New Year's holiday suggest that this period is associated with increased risks of unprotected vaginal intercourse compared with other holidays. 
targeting behavioral risks, prevention strategies to mitigate sexual violence, and improving access to contraception around holidays may limit the risks associated with unprotected vaginal intercourse. Next article from Lancet. Atezolizumab plus Bevacizumab and Chemotherapy for Metastatic, Persistent, or Recurrent Cervical Cancer, BEAK, a Randomized, Open-Label, Phase 3 Trial. Background. The GOG240 trial established Bevacizumab with chemotherapy as standard first-line therapy for metastatic or recurrent cervical cancer. In the BEAK trial, NGET CX10 GEICO 68 GOG 1084 GOG 3030, we aim to evaluate the addition of an immune checkpoint inhibitor to the standard backbone. Methods In this investigator-initiated, randomized, open-label, phase 3 trial, patients from 92 sites in Europe, Japan, and the USA with metastatic, stage IVB, persistent, or recurrent cervical cancer that was measurable, previously untreated, and not amenable to curative surgery or radiation were randomly assigned one-to-one to receive standard therapy. Cisplatin 50 mg M2 or carboplatin area under the curve of 5, paclitaxel 175 mg M2, and bevacizumab 15 mg Kg, all on day 1 of every 3-week cycle, with or without atezolizumab 1200 mg. Treatment was continued until disease progression, unacceptable toxicity, patient withdrawal or death. Stratification factors were previous concomitant chamoradiation, yes versus no, histology, squamous cell carcinoma versus adenocarcinoma including adenosquamous carcinoma, and platinum backbone, cisplatin versus carboplatin. Dual primary endpoints were investigator-assessed progression-free survival according to response evaluation criteria in solid tumors version 1.1 and overall survival analyzed in the intention-to-treat population. Findings Between October 8, 2018, and August 20, 2021, 410 of 519 patients assessed for eligibility were enrolled. Median progression-free survival was 13 middle.7 months, 95% C12 middle.3 to 16 middle.6, with atezolizumab in 10 middle.4 months, 9 middle.7 to 11 middle.7, with standard therapy, hazard ratio, HR equals 0 middle.62. 95% C0 middle.49 to 0 middle.78, P less than 0 middle.0001. At the interim overall survival analysis, median overall survival was 32 middle.1 months, 95% C25 middle.3 to 36 middle.8, versus 22 middle.8 months, 20 middle.3 to 28 middle.0, respectively, HR0 middle.68. 95% C0 middle.52 to 0 middle.88, P equals 0 middle.0046. Grade 3 or worse adverse events occurred in 79% of patients in the experimental group, and in 75% of patients in the standard group. Grade 1 to 2 diarrhea, arthralgia, pyrexia, and rash were increased with atezolizumab. Interpretation Adding atezolizumab to a standard bevacizumab plus platinum regimen for metastatic, persistent, or recurrent cervical cancer significantly improves progression-free and overall survival and should be considered as a new first-line therapy option. (music) 
Next article from Circulation. Invasive endotyping in patients with angina and no obstructive coronary artery disease, a randomized controlled trial. Background. We investigated the usefulness of invasive coronary function testing to diagnose the cause of angina in patients with no obstructive coronary arteries. Methods. Outpatients referred for coronary computed tomography angiography in three hospitals in the United Kingdom were prospectively screened. After coronary computed tomography angiography, patients with unobstructed coronary arteries, and who consented, underwent invasive endotyping. The diagnostic assessments included coronary angiography, fractional flow reserve, patient excluded if less than or equal to 0.80 and, for those without obstructive coronary artery disease, coronary flow reserve, abnormal less than 2.0, index of microvascular resistance, abnormal greater than or equal to 25, and intracoronary infusion of acetylcholine, 0.182, and 18.2 g per milliliter, 2 milliliters per minute for 2 minutes, to assess for microvascular and coronary spasm. Participants were randomly assigned to disclosure of the results of the coronary function tests to the invasive cardiologist, intervention group, or non-disclosure. Results Of 322 eligible patients, 250, 77.6%, underwent invasive endotyping, 19, 7.6%, had obstructive coronary disease, 127, 55.0%, had microvascular angina, 27, 11.7%, had visoespastic angina, 17, 7.4%, had both, and 60, 26.0%, had no abnormality. A total of 231 patients, mean age, 55.7 years, 64.5% women, were randomly assigned and followed up, median duration, 19.9, 12.6 to 26.9, months. The clinician diagnosed vasomotor angina in 51, 44.3%, patients in the intervention group and in 55, 47.4%, patients in the control group. After randomization, patients in the intervention group were fourfold, odds ratio, 4.05, 95% C, 2.32 to 7.24, P less than 0.001, more likely to be diagnosed with a coronary vasomotor disorder. The frequency of this diagnosis increased to 76.5%. The frequency of normal coronary function, e, no vasomotor disorder, was not different between the groups before randomization, 51.3% versus 50.9%, but was reduced in the intervention group after randomization, 23.5% versus 50.9%, p less than 0.001. At 6 and 12 months, the Seattle Angina Questionnaire Summary Score in the intervention versus control groups was 59.2 plus or minus 24.2, 2.3 plus or minus 16.2 change from baseline, versus 60.4 plus or minus 23.9, 4.6 plus or minus 16.4 change, and 63.7 plus or minus 23.5, 4.7 plus or minus 14.7 change, versus 66.0 plus or minus 19.3, 7.9 plus or minus 17.1 change, respectively, and not different between groups, global P equals 0.36. Compared with the control group, global treatment satisfaction was higher in the intervention group at 12 months, 69.9 plus or minus 22.8 versus 61.7 plus or minus 26.9, 2.3 plus or minus 
p equals 0.013. Conclusions For patients with angina and no obstructive coronary arteries, a diagnosis informed by invasive functional assessment had no effect on long-term angina burden, whereas treatment satisfaction improved. American College of Cardiology Pivotal Investigation of Safety and Efficacy of Drug-Eluting Resorbable Scaffold Treatment Below the Knee Contribution to Literature The LIFE-BTK trial showed that an everolimus-eluting resorbable scaffold reduces lower extremity limb events compared with balloon angioplasty. Description The goal of the trial was to evaluate the use of an everolimus-eluting resorbable scaffold compared with balloon angioplasty among patients with chronic limb-threatening ischemia and infrapoplyteal artery disease. Study design. Randomized. Parallel. Blinded. Patients with chronic limb-threatening ischemia and infrapoplyteal artery disease were randomized to an everolimus-eluting resorbable scaffold, N equals 173, versus balloon angioplasty. N equals 88. Total number of enrollees, 261. Duration of follow-up, 1 year. Mean patient age, 72 years. Percentage female, 32%. Percentage with diabetes, 70%. Inclusion criteria. Patients greater than or equal to 18 years of age with chronic limb-threatening ischemia and infrapoplyteal artery disease. Chronic limb-threatening ischemia defined as Rutherford-Becker class 4 or 5. Principal findings? The primary efficacy outcome, freedom from amputation above the ankle, occlusion of the target vessel, clinically driven revascularization of the target lesion, or binary restenosis of the target lesion at one year, was, 74% in the everolimus eluding resorbable scaffold group versus 44% in the angioplasty group, P less than 0.0001 for superiority. The primary safety outcome, freedom from major adverse limb events at 6 months, occurred in 97% of the everolimus eluding resorbable scaffold group versus 100% of the angioplasty group, P less than 0.0001 for non-inferiority. Secondary outcomes, freedom from amputation above ankle of target limb, occlusion of target vessel, or clinically driven revascularization of target lesion at one year, 83% with everolimus eluding resorbable scaffold group versus 70% with angioplasty. Interpretation Among patients with chronic limb-threatening ischemia, an everolimus eluding resorbable scaffold reduces lower extremity limb outcomes compared with balloon angioplasty. Safety outcomes were similar between treatment groups. An everolimus eluding resorbable scaffold may represent a novel strategy for chronic limb-threatening ischemia due to infrapoplyteal artery disease. Revascularization for ischemic ventricular dysfunction the revived PIS-2 trial failed to show that multivessel PCI improved event-free survival and of among patients with severe ischemic cardiomyopathy. Description The goal of the trial was to evaluate percutaneous coronary intervention, PCI, plus optimal medical therapy compared with optimal medical therapy alone among individuals with left ventricular ejection fraction, LVEF, less than or equal to 35% and extensive coronary artery disease, CAD. 
Patients with OF less than or equal to 35% and extensive CAD were randomized to multivessel PCI plus optimal medical therapy, N equals 347, versus optimal medical therapy alone, N equals 353. Total number of enrollees, 700. Duration of follow-up, 3.4 years. Mean patient age, 70 years. Percentage female, 13%. Percentage with diabetes, 39%. Secondary prevention implantable cardioverter defibrillator, ICD, 27%. Inclusion criteria. Of less than or equal to 35%. Extensive CAD. Viability in greater than or equal to 4 dysfunctional myocardial segments. Exclusion criteria. Acute myocardial infarction within 4 weeks. Acute decompensated heart failure. Sustained ventricular arrhythmia within 72 hours. Principal findings? The primary outcome, all-cause mortality or hospitalization for heart failure, occurred in 37.2% of the PCI plus optimal medical therapy group compared with 38.0% of the optimal medical therapy alone group, P equals 0.96. The findings were the same in all subgroups. Secondary outcomes. All-cause mortality. 31.7% of the PCI plus optimal medical therapy group compared with 32.6% of the optimal medical therapy alone group, P equals not significant, NS acute myocardial infarction, 10.7% of the PCI plus optimal medical therapy group compared with 10.8% of the optimal medical therapy alone group, P equals NS at 12 months, mean difference, 0.9 percentage points, P equals NS all-cause death or aborted sudden death, 41.6% in the PCI plus optimal medical therapy group versus 40.2% in the optimal medical therapy alone group, P equals 0.80 revascularization versus medical therapy according to viability. Interpretation Among patients with LV systolic dysfunction and extensive CAD, multivessel PCI did not improve all-cause mortality or LV systolic function. However, there was no signal of harm from this approach. PCI also failed to reduce potentially fatal ventricular arrhythmias. Clinical outcomes were the same among those with viable and non-viable myocardium. Non-viable myocardium and scar burden predicted a lower likelihood of LV recovery. It remains possible that patients with the most severe CAD were referred for coronary artery bypass grafting. The STITCH trial found an association between coronary artery bypass graft surgery and improved survival among patients with LV systolic dysfunction and extensive CAD. Lack of benefit from PCI may have been due to less extensive CAD, fewer patients, and shorter follow-up. Next article from Journal of Clinical Endocrinology and Metabolism. Efficacy and safety of tepratumumab in patients with thyroid eye disease of long duration and low disease activity. Context. Early inflammatory thyroid eye disease, TED, can lead to symptomatic chronic disease, including disabling proptosis. Tepratumumab, an insulin-like growth factor 1 receptor, IGF-1R, inhibitor, previously demonstrated efficacy in acute, High Inflammation TED Trials Objective We present data from the first placebo-controlled trial with tepratumumab in chronic-slash-low-disease-activity TED. Methods This randomized double-masked, 
Placebo-controlled trial, conducted at 11 U.S. centers, enrolled adult participants with TED duration of 2 to 10 years, clinical activity score, CAS, less than or equal to 1 or no additional inflammation or progression in proptosis slash diplopia for greater than or equal to 1 year, proptosis greater than or equal to 3 and from before TED and or from normal, euthyroid slash mildly hypo slash hyperthyroid, no prior tepertumumab, and no steroids within 3 weeks of baseline. Patients received, 2 to 1, intravenous tepertumumab or placebo once every 3 weeks, total 8 infusions. The primary endpoint was proptosis, um, improvement at week 24. Adverse events, A's were assessed. Results. A total of 62, 42 tepertumumab and 20 placebo, patients were randomized. At week 24, least squares mean SE proptosis improvement was greater with tepertumumab, minus 2.41, 0.228, than with placebo, minus 0.92, 0.323, difference minus 1.48, 95% C minus 2.28, minus 0.69, P equals 0.0004. Proportions of patients with A's were similar between groups. Hyperglycemia was reported in 6, 15%, versus 2, 10%, and hearing impairment in 9, 22% versus 2, 10%, with tepertumumab and placebo, respectively. A's led to discontinuation in one tepertumumab, left ear conductive hearing loss with congenital anomaly, and one placebo patient, infusion related. There were no deaths. Conclusion Tepertumumab significantly improved proptosis versus placebo in long-standing slash low inflammation TED, demonstrating efficacy regardless of disease duration slash activity. The safety profile was comparable to that previously reported. Higher risk of incident hyperthyroidism in patients with atrial fibrillation. Background Atrial fibrillation, AF, has been linked to increased hyperthyroidism risk, but contributing factors are unclear. Objective we aim to investigate whether AF could predict hyperthyroidism and related risk factors. Methods This retrospective cohort study was conducted in a tertiary medical institution and included patients aged 18 years or older with AF but without hyperthyroidism at diagnosis. The endpoint was defined as newly diagnosed hyperthyroidism during the follow-up period. Results The study cohort included 8,552 participants. Patients who developed new hyperthyroidism were younger and the proportion of females was higher. They had fewer comorbidities, including diabetes, 26% versus 29%, P equals 0.121, hypertension, 51% versus 58%, P less than 0.001, coronary artery disease, 17% versus 25%, P less than 0.001, stroke, 16% versus 22%, P less than 0.001, and end-stage renal disease, ESRD 6% versus 10%, P equals 0.001. The CHADS-2 score was lower in patients with hyperthyroidism, 1.74 versus 2.05, P equals 0.031, but there was no statistically significant difference in the CHADS-2-DS2 VOSC and has bled score. Cox regression analysis identified younger age, female gender, history of congestive heart failure, hypertension, diabetes, 
non-ESRD status, and lower CHADS2 score but not CHAD2DS2 VOSC as independent predictors of incident hyperthyroidism during follow-up. We also propose a novel, simple risk stratification score, SADHEC2 score, with excellent predictive power for incident hyperthyroidism during follow-up. Conclusion Our results provide insight into clinical risk factors for the development of hyperthyroidism in AF patients, as identified by the novel SADHEC2 score. AF appears to be a common precursor of hyperthyroidism. Next article from Journal of Hepatology. Incidence and Predictors of Hepatocellular Carcinoma in Patients with Autoimmune Hepatitis Background and Aims Autoimmune Hepatitis, AIH, is a rare chronic liver disease of unknown etiology. The risk of hepatocellular carcinoma, HCC, remains unclear and risk factors are not well defined. We aim to investigate the risk of HCC across a multi-center A cohort and to identify predictive factors. Methods we performed a retrospective, observational, multicentric study of patients included in the International Autoimmune Hepatitis Group Retrospective Registry. The assessed clinical outcomes were HCC development, liver transplantation, and death. Fine and gray regression analysis stratified by center was applied to determine the effects of individual covariates. The cumulative incidence of HCC was estimated using the competing risk method with death as a competing risk. Results a total of 1,428 patients diagnosed with A from 1980 to 2020 from 22 eligible centers across Europe and Canada were included, with a median follow-up of 11.1 years, interquartile range 5.2 to 15.9. 293, 20.5%, patients had cirrhosis at diagnosis. During follow-up, 24 patients developed HCC, 1.7% and incidence rate of 1.44 cases slash 1,000 patient years, the cumulative incidence of HCC increased over time, 0.6% at 5 years, 0.9% at 10 years, 2.7% at 20 years, and 6.6% at 30 years of follow-up. Patients who developed cirrhosis during follow-up had a significantly higher incidence of HCC. The cumulative incidence of HCC was 2.6%, 4.6%, 5.6%, and 6.6% at 5, 10, 15, and 20 years after the development of cirrhosis, respectively. Obesity, hazard ratio, HR, 2.94, P equals 0.04, cirrhosis, HR 3.17, P equals 0.01, and A-PSC variant syndrome, HR 5.18. P equals 0.007, at baseline were independent risk factors for HCC development. Conclusions HCC incidence in A is low even after cirrhosis development and is associated with risk factors including obesity, cirrhosis, and A-PSC variant syndrome. Impact and Implications The risk of developing hepatocellular carcinoma, HCC, in individuals with autoimmune hepatitis, AIH, seems to be lower than for other etiologies of chronic liver disease. Yet, solid data for this specific patient group remain elusive, given that most of the existing evidence comes from small, single-center studies. In our study, we found that HCC incidence in patients with A is low even after the onset of cirrhosis. Additionally, 
Factors such as advanced age, obesity, cirrhosis, alcohol consumption, and the presence of the A-PSC variant syndrome at the time of the A diagnosis are linked to a higher risk of HCC. Based on these findings, there seems to be merit in adopting a specialized HCC monitoring program for patients with A based on their individual risk factor. Next article from Clinical Gastroenterology and Hepatology. Achalasia is strongly associated with eosinophilic esophagitis and other allergic disorder. Background and Names Achalasia has been assumed to be an autoimmune disease targeting esophageal myenteric neurons. Recently, we proposed an alternative hypothesis that achalasia sometimes might be allergy-driven, caused by a form of eosinophilic esophagitis, O, in which activated eosinophils and or mast cells infiltrating esophageal muscle release products that disrupt motility and damage myenteric neurons. To seek epidemiologic support for this hypothesis, we identified patients with achalasia in the Utah Population Database and explored their frequency of having O and other allergic disorders. Methods We used International Classification of Diseases codes to identify patients with achalasia and allergic disorders including O, asthma, atopic dermatitis, contact dermatitis, allergic rhinitis, allergic conjunctivitis, hive-slash-urticaria, and anaphylaxis. We calculated relative risk. RR, for each allergic disorder by comparing the number observed in patients with achalasia with the expected number in individuals matched for birth year and sex, and we performed sub-analyses for patients aged less than or equal to 40 versus age greater than 40 years. Results Among 844 patients with achalasia identified, 55% female, median age at diagnosis, 58 years, 402, 47.6%, had greater than or equal to one allergic disorder. 55 patients with achalasia, 6.5%, had O, 1.670 o cases expected, for RR of 32.9, 95% confidence interval, 24.8 to 42.8, P less than 0.001. In 208 patients with achalasia age less than or equal to 40 years, the RR for O was 69.6, 95% confidence interval, 46.6 to 100.0, p less than 0.001. RR also was increased significantly for all other allergic disorders evaluated, all greater than threefold higher than population rates. Conclusions Achalasia is strongly associated with O and other allergic disorders. These data support the hypothesis that achalasia sometimes might have an allergic etiology. Development and Validation of the Non-Alcoholic Fatty Liver Disease Familial Risk Score to Detect Advanced Fibrosis, a Prospective, Multicenter Study Background and Names Non-Alcoholic Fatty Liver Disease, NAFLD, related fibrosis is heritable, but it is unclear how family history may be used to identify first-degree relatives with advanced fibrosis. We aim to develop and validate a simple risk score to identify first-degree relatives of probands who have undergone assessment of liver fibrosis who are at higher risk of NAFLD with advanced fibrosis. Methods This perspective, cross-sectional, familial study consisted of a derivation cohort from San Diego, California, and a validation cohort from Helsinki, Finland. 
This study included consecutive adult probands, N equals 242, with NAFLD and advanced fibrosis, NAFLD without advanced fibrosis, and non-NAFLD, with at least one of their first-degree relatives. All included probands and first-degree relatives underwent evaluation of liver fibrosis, the majority by magnetic resonance elastography. Results A total of 396 first-degree relatives, 64% male, were included. The median age and body mass index were 47 years in turquoiseau range, 32 to 62 years, and 27.6 kg/m2 in turquoiseau range, 24.1 to 32.5 kg/m2, respectively. Age: 1. Point, type 2 diabetes: 1. Point, obesity: 2. Points, and proband with NAFLD and advanced fibrosis: 2. Points were predictors of advanced fibrosis among first-degree relatives in the derivation cohort, N equals 220, and formed the NAFLD familial risk score. The area under the receiver-operator characteristic curve of the NAFLD familial risk score for detecting advanced fibrosis was 0.94 in the validation cohort, N equals 176. The NAFLD familial risk score outperformed the fibrosis 4 index in the validation cohort, Area under the receiver-operator characteristic curve, 0.94 versus 0.70, p equals 0.02. Conclusions The NAFLD familial risk score is a simple and accurate clinical tool to identify advanced fibrosis in first-degree relatives. These data may have implications for surveillance in NAFLD. Next article from the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine Early Evidence of Chronic Obstructive Pulmonary Disease Obscured by Race-Specific Prediction Equations Rationale, the identification of early chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, COPD, is essential to appropriately counsel patients regarding smoking cessation, provide symptomatic treatment, and eventually develop disease-modifying treatments. Disease severity in COPD is defined using race-specific spirometry equations. These may disadvantage non-white individuals in diagnosis and care. Objectives, determine the impact of race-specific equations on African-American, AA, versus non-Hispanic white individuals. Methods, cross-sectional analyses of the COP gene, genetic epidemiology of chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, cohort were conducted, comparing non-Hispanic white, N equals 6,766, and AA, N equals 3,366, participants for COPD manifestations. Measurements and main results, spirometric classifications using race-specific, multi-ethnic and race-reverse prediction equations, and Haynes, National Health and Nutrition Examination Survey, and Global Lung Function Initiative Other and Global, were compared, as were respiratory symptoms, six-minute walk distance, computed tomography imaging, respiratory exacerbations, and St. George's Respiratory Questionnaire. Application of different prediction equations to the cohort resulted in different classifications by stage, with NHANES and Global Lung Function Initiative race-specific equations being minimally different, but race-reversed equations moving AA participants to more severe stages and especially between the Global Initiative for Chronic Obstructive Lung Disease, GOLD, stage 0 and preserved ratio-impaired spirometry groups. Classification using the established NHANES race-specific equations demonstrated that for each of gold stages 1 to 4, AA participants were younger, had fewer pack years and more current smoking, 
but had more exacerbations, shorter six-minute walk distance, greater dyspnea and worse bowed, body mass index, airway obstruction, dyspnea, and exercise capacity, scores in St. George's Respiratory Questionnaire scores. Differences were greatest in gold stages 1 and 2. Race reversed equations reclassified 774 AA participants, 43%, from gold stage 0 to preserved ratio impaired spirometry. Conclusions, race-specific equations underestimated disease severity among AA participants. These effects were particularly evident in early disease and may result in late detection of COPD. Next article is from Kidney International Reports. Systematic Review of Cardiovascular Benefits and Safety of Sucupatril Valsartan in End-Stage Kidney Disease Introduction Patients with end-stage kidney disease, ESKD, frequently develop heart failure, contributing to high mortality. Limited data exist on cardiovascular benefits and safety of Sucupatril Valsartan in this population. Our systematic review aims to evaluate the efficacy and safety of sucupatril valsartan versus standard care in patients with ESKD who are on dialysis. Methods We conducted a search in Embase, Medline, and Cochrane databases to identify relevant studies and assessed outcomes using random effect model and generic inverse variance approach. Results Analysis of 12 studies involving 799 eligible patients with ESKD revealed improvement in left ventricular ejection fraction, LVEF, with sucubitril valsartan compared to a control group with pooled mean difference, MD 6.58%, 95% confidence interval, C, 1.86, 11.29. LF significantly improved in patients with LF less than 50%, heart failure with reduced ejection fraction, FREF, and heart failure with moderately reduced ejection fraction, FREF, with MD 12.42%, 95% C, 9.39, 15.45. However, patients with LF greater than 50%, heart failure with preserved ejection fraction, FEF, did not exhibit statistically significant effect, MD 2.6%, 95% C, 1.15, 6.35. Sucupatril valsartan significantly enhanced ULF in patients with FREF, with MD 13.8%, 95% C, 12.04, 15.82. Safety analysis indicated no differences in incidence of hyperkalemia, pooled odds ratio or 0.72, 95% C, 0.38, 1.36, or hypotension, pooled risk ratio, RR, 1.03, 95% C, 0.36, 2.98. No cases of angioedema were reported. However, safety analysis relies on evidence of limited robustness due to the observational nature of the studies. Conclusion Our systematic review suggests that sucubitril valsartan benefits patients with ESKD with FREF and FREF by improving ILF without increasing the risk of hyperkalemia, hypotension, or angioedema compared to standard care. However, Safety analysis based on observational studies inherently has limitations for establishing causal relationships. Improved renal function and initial treatment improves patient survival, renal outcomes, 
and glucocorticoid-related complications in IG-4-related kidney disease in Japan. Introduction We aim to clarify long-term renal prognosis, complications of malignancy, glucocorticoid, GC, toxicity, and mortality in immunoglobulin G4, IG-4-related kidney disease, IG-4-RKD. Methods Reviewing the medical records of 95 patients with IG-4-RKD, we investigated clinical and pathologic features at baseline, the course of renal function, complications of malignancy, GC toxicity, and mortality during follow-up, median 71 months. The standardized incidence ratio, SIR, of malignancy and standardized mortality ratio were calculated using national statistics. Factors related to outcomes were assessed by Cox regression analyzes. Results. At diagnosis, the median estimated glomerular infiltration rate, EGFR, was 46 milliliters per minute per 1.73 square meters. GC achieved initial improvement. Additional renal function recovery within three months of initial treatment occurred in patients with highly elevated serum Ig and Ig4 levels and hypocomplementemia. During follow-up, 68%, 17%, and 3% of the patients had chronic kidney disease, CKD, greater than 30% Ig4 decline, and end-stage renal disease, ESRD, respectively. Age-adjusted and sex-adjusted Cox regression analyzes indicated that EGFR hazard ratio, HR, 0.71 and extensive fibrosis, HR, 2.58, at treatment initiation had a significant impact on the time to CKD. 10 patients died, and the standardized mortality ratio was 0.94. The serve malignancy was 1.52. The incidence rate, IR, of severe infection was 1. 81 hundredths person years. Cox regression analyzes showed that the best EGFR within three months after treatment initiation were associated with lower mortality, HR 0.67, and fewer severe infections, HR 0.63. Conclusion This study suggests that more renal function recovery through early treatment initiation may improve patient survival, renal outcomes, and some GC-related complications in IG-4-RKD. Iptocopin in idiopathic immune complex mediated membranoproliferative glomerulonephritis, protocol of the apparent multicenter, randomized phase 3 study. Introduction Immune complex mediated membranoproliferative glomerulonephritis, ICMPGN, is an ultra rare, fast progressing kidney disease that may be idiopathic, primary, or secondary to chronic infection, autoimmune disorders, or monoclonal gammopathies. Dysregulation of the alternative complement pathway is implicated in the pathophysiology of ICMPGN, and currently, there are no approved targeted treatments. Iptocopin is an oral, highly potent proximal complement inhibitor that specifically binds to factor B and inhibits the alternative pathway, AP. Methods This randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled phase 3 study, apparent, NCT 057553866, will evaluate the efficacy and safety of ipticopin in patients with idiopathic, primary, ICMPGN enrolling up to 68 patients, minimum of 10 adolescents, aged 12 to 60 years with biopsy-confirmed ICMPGN, proteinuria greater than or equal to 1 gg, and estimated glomerular filtration rate, EGFR, greater than or equal to 30 ml per minute per 1.73 square meters.
All patients will receive maximally tolerated angiotensin-converting enzyme inhibitor-slash-angiotensin receptor blocker and vaccination against encapsulated bacteria. Patients with any organ transplant, progressive crescentic glomerulonephritis, or kidney biopsy with greater than 50% interstitial fibrosis-slash-tubular atrophy, will be excluded. Patients will be randomized one-to-one to receive either ipticopin 200 mg twice daily, BID, or placebo for six months followed by open-label treatment with ipticopin 200 mg bid for all patients for six months. The primary objective of the study is to evaluate the efficacy of ipticopin versus placebo and proteinuria reduction measured as urine protein to creatinine ratio, UPCR 24-hour urine, at six months key secondary endpoints will assess kidney function measured by ECFR, patients who achieve a proteinuria ECFR composite endpoint, and patient reported fatigue. Conclusion this study will provide evidence toward the efficacy and safety of ipticopin in idiopathic, primary, ICMPGN. Next article from Neurology Health and Wellness Coaching for Five Year Projected Cardiovascular Health, a Randomized Controlled Trial. Background and Objectives Evidence of effective multifactorial lifestyle interventions for primary stroke prevention is lacking, despite the significant contribution of lifestyle to stroke burden. We aim to determine the efficacy of health and wellness coaching, HWC, for primary stroke and cardiovascular disease, CVD, prevention in adults at a moderate to high CVD risk. Methods This was a parallel, two-arm, open-label, single-blinded, Phase 3 randomized controlled trial to determine the efficacy of HWC for primary stroke prevention in individuals 30 years and older with a 5-year CVD risk greater than or equal to 10% as measured by 5-year absolute CVD risk, as measured by the PREDICT tool, at 9 months post-randomization. Eligible participants were those with a 5-year CVD risk greater than or equal to 10%, with no history of stroke, transient ischemic attack, or myocardial infarction. The relative risk reduction, RRR, and odds ratios, or, were evaluated separately in those at moderate, 10% to 14%, 5-year CVD risk and those at high risk, greater than or equal to 15%, at baseline. The Life Simple 7, LS7, score for lifestyle-related CVD risk, as the indicator of cardiovascular health, was a key secondary outcome. Results Of a total of 320 participants, 161 were randomized to the HWC group and 159 to the usual care, UC, group. HWC resulted in a statistically significant RRR of minus 10.9, 95% C minus 21.0 to minus 0.9, in 5-year CVD risk in the higher CVD risk group but no change in the moderate risk group. An improvement in the total LS7 score was seen in the HWC group compared with the UC group. Absolute difference equals 0.485, 95% C, 0.073 to 0.897, P equals 0.02. Improvement in blood pressure scores was statistically significantly greater in the HWC group than in the UC group for those at high risk of CVD, or 2.28, 95% C 1.12 to 4.63, and 1.55, 0.80 to 3.01, respectively. No statistically significant differences in mood scores, medication adherence, 
quality of life, and satisfaction with life scores over time or between groups were seen. Discussion Health and wellness coaching resulted in a significant RRR in the 5-year CBD risk compared with UC at 9 months post-randomization in patients with a high baseline CBD risk. There was no improvement in CBD risk in the moderate risk group, hence, this study did not meet the primary hypothesis. However, this treatment effect is clinically significant, number needed to treat was 43. The findings suggest that HWC has potential of further refined to improve lifestyle risk factors of stroke. Next article from JAMA Neurology. Atrial fibrillation in patients with stroke attributed to large or small vessel disease three-year results from the stroke AF randomized clinical trial. Importance The stroke AF study found that in patients with prior ischemic stroke attributed to large artery atherosclerotic disease, LAD, or small vessel occlusive disease, SVD, 12% developed AF over one year when monitored with an insertable cardiac monitor, ICM. The occurrence over subsequent years is unknown. Objectives to compare the rates of AF detection through three years of follow-up between an ICM versus site-specific usual care in patients with prior ischemic stroke attributed to LAD or SVD. Design, setting, and participants This multi-center, randomized, one-to-one, clinical trial took place at 33 sites in the U.S. with enrollment between April 2016 and July 2019 and three-year follow-up through July 2022. Eligible patients were aged 60 years or older, or aged 50 to 59 years with at least one additional stroke risk factor and had an index ischemic stroke attributed to LAD or SVD within 10 days prior to ICM insertion. Of the 496 patients enrolled, 492 were randomized and 4 were excluded. Interventions ICM monitoring versus site-specific usual care. Main outcomes and measures the pre-specified long-term outcome of the trial was AF detection through study follow-up, up to three years. AF was defined as an episode lasting more than 30 seconds, adjudicated by an expert committee. Results in total, 492 patients were randomized and included in the analyses, median, IQR, age, 66, 60 to 74, years, 307 men, 62.4%, and 185 women, 37.6%, of whom 314 completed three-year follow-up, 63.8%. The incidence rate of AF at three years was 21.7%, 46 patients, in the ICM group versus 2.4%, 5 patients, in the control group, hazard ratio, 10.0, 95% C, 4.0 to 25.2, P less than 0.001. Conclusions and relevance patients with ischemic stroke attributed to LAD or SVD faced an increasing risk of AF over time and most of the AF occurrences are not reliably detected by standard medical monitoring methods. One year of negative monitoring should not reassure clinicians that patients who have experienced stroke will not develop AF over the next two years. Next article from Journal of Clinical Oncology. Isotuximab, carfilzomib, lenalidomide, and dexamethasone for the treatment of high-risk newly diagnosed multiple myeloma. Purpose. The GMMG concept trial investigated isotuximab, carfilzomib, 
lenalidomide, and dexamethasone, ESA-KRD, in transplant eligible, TE, and transplant non-eligible, TNE, patients with newly diagnosed multiple myeloma, NDMM with exclusively high-risk disease for whom prospective trials are limited, aiming to induce minimal residual disease, MRD, negativity. Methods This academic, investigator-initiated, multi-center, phase 2 trial-enrolled patients with high-risk NDMM, HRNDMM defined by mandatory international staging system stage 2-3 combined with DEL-17P, T4-14, T14-16, or more than 3-1Q21 copies as high-risk cytogenetic aberrations, HRCAs. Patients received ESA-KRD induction slash consolidation and ESA-KR maintenance. TE patients received high-dose melphalan. TNE patients received two additional ESA-KRD cycles post-induction. This pre-specified interim analysis, YA, reports the primary endpoint, MRD negativity, less than 10-5, next-generation flow, at the end of consolidation. The secondary endpoint was progression-free survival, PFS. Results. Among 125 patients with HRNDMM TE intention to treat, ITT YA, 99, TNEITT, 26, of the YA population for the primary endpoint, the median age was 58, TE YA, and 74, TNEITT, years. Del 17P was the most common HRCA, TE, 44.4%, TNE, 42.3%, about one-third of evaluable TE-slash-TNE patients presented two or more HRCAs, respectively. The trial met its primary endpoint with MRD negativity rates after consolidation of 67.7% TE and 54.2% TNE of patients. 81 of 99 TE patients reached MRD negativity at any time point, 81.8%. MRD negativity was sustained for greater than or equal to one year in 62.6% of patients. With a median follow-up of 44 TE and 33 TNE months, median PFS was not reached in either arm. Conclusion ESA-KRD effectively induces high rates of sustainable MRD negativity in the difficult-to-treat HRNDMM population, regardless of transplant status, translating into a median PFS that was not yet reached after 44-33 months. Next article from Journal of Clinical Rheumatology. Racial disparities in diagnosis and treatment of patients with dermatomyositis of different skin tones. Background. Delays in the diagnosis and treatment of dermatological conditions in minorities are a well-documented health disparity. We aim to determine if there was a delay in detection and treatment initiation for dermatomyositis, DM, and amyopathic dermatomyositis, ADM, in patients of different skin tones. Methods Patients from Montefiore Medical Center who met the criteria for DM and ADM were included in this cohort study. Records were reviewed for date of first documented rash, creatine kinase levels, muscle weakness complaints, and date of first steroid or disease-modifying anti-rheumatic drug initiation. The median number of days between rash documentation and therapy initiation was compared for patients of different races, including non-Hispanic white, non-Hispanic black, Hispanic and other, Asian and unknown. Data were compared in white versus non-white skin. Results 
63DM and 9ADM patients met the inclusion criteria. There was a shorter time to treatment initiation in white versus non-white patients, with a median number of 8 days compared with 21 days, respectively, P equals 0.05. Kaplan-Meier curves showed prolonged time to diagnosis and treatment in all other races when compared with white patients, P equals 0.03. Discussion It took clinicians longer to diagnose and treat DM and ADM in patients of color. The trends observed emphasize the importance of increasing dermatology education of non-white skin to improve detection and treatment of DM and ADM and minimize health disparities. Next article from Arthritis and Rheumatology Safety and efficacy of long-term Boclosporin treatment for lupus nephritis in the Phase 3 Aurora 2 clinical trial. Objective. Aurora 2 evaluated the long-term safety, tolerability, and efficacy of Boclosporin compared to placebo in patients with lupus nephritis, LANE, receiving an additional two years of treatment following completion of the one-year Aurora 1 study. Methods. Enrolled patients continued their double-blinded treatment of Voclosporin or placebo randomly assigned in Aurora 1 in combination with mycophenolate mephetal and low-dose glucocorticoids. The primary objective was safety assessed with adverse events, A's, and biochemical and hematological assessments. Efficacy was measured by renal response. Results A total of 216 patients enrolled in Aurora 2. Treatment was well tolerated with 86.1% completing the study and no unexpected safety signals. A's occurred in 86% and 80% of patients in the Voclosporin and control groups, respectively, with an A profile similar to that seen in Aurora 1, albeit with reduced frequency. Investigator reported A's of both glomerular filtration rate, GFR, decrease and hypertension occurred more frequently in the Voclosporin than the control group. 10.3% versus 5.0%, and 8.6% versus 7.0%, respectively. Mean corrected estimated GFR, EGFR, was within the normal range and stable in both treatment groups. EGFR slope over the two-year period was minus 0.2 milliliters per minute slash 1.73 square meters, 95% confidence interval, C, minus 3.0 to 2.7, in the Voclosporin group and minus 5.4 milliliters per minute slash 1.73 square meters, 95% C minus 8.4 to minus 2.3, in the control group. Improved proteinuria persisted across three years of treatment, leading to more frequent complete renal responses in patients treated with Voclosporin, 50.9% versus 39.0%, odds ratio 1.74, 95% C1.00 to 3.03. Conclusion Data demonstrate the safety and efficacy of long-term Boclosporin treatment over three years of follow-up in patients with LANE. Thank you for listening to This Week in Medicine, your filtered medical journal summary. Have a great week ahead, stay blessed and be humane.